Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me as we get the chance to speak with Nicola Nation. Now, she's the new CEO of Akina Foundation, so we have a great talk about impact-driven organizations and the work that they do. And I'll put a link in the show notes because it's actually interesting to listen back to my interview with Louise Aitken now a couple years ago when she was at the Akina Foundation just to see how our terminology has changed even in a couple short years. As well as learning about the work that they do, we find out all about Nicola's life. I hope you enjoy it, and if you do, don't forget that this is episode 289, so there's plenty of listening in the back catalog for those upcoming road trips and holidays. And at the time of releasing this, it's about to be Christmas, so I hope that everybody has a relaxing and enjoyable break. Now let's get straight into this interview with Nicola. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Nicola Nation, who's the CEO of Akina. Thank you for joining me. Tina Koto, Stephen, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. And we've had a great catch up before we started recording um, because I, I had Lou on now a couple of years ago. Yes. Um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from you kind of an update on Akina and what you're involved in and future plans and, mm-hmm. and I guess getting your take on what we would maybe call the impact sector, you know, what, what's going on. But before we do that, <laughs> I'd like to go back in time and find out about people's backgrounds and histories. So in your case, could you tell us about, say, when you were five years old, where were you living sure. and what was life like? Great. Oh, great question and a, a subject that I, I, I guess I know a little bit about. <laughs> so I am um, one of three. I'm a middle, middle child and only daughter, an older brother and a younger brother. So when I was um, five, I would have had a seven-year-old brother and a three-year-old brother and was living uh, in Paramata in Wellington, which is where, where I grew up in Porniki. Uh, and just started at a lovely Catholic school in Plymouthton that is still there, St. Teresa's in Plymouthton. Yeah, that was life for me. Wow, that's great. And had your family, were they like originally from Wellington? Or like, is that a long-term, you know, through the generations type place? Or had yeah. they come recently? Or? Yes, so yes, long, long-term um, Wellingtonians. My grandfather was a grocer and my father married the boss's daughter. So dad, dad um, was the grocery delivery driver. Um, I do laugh about this because the world has gone full circle. So dad used to deliver groceries in the back of a Ford van. So it was before, well before the um, advent of online shopping, obviously. Uh, and he met my mum there and they, uh, my grandfather had a chain of um, supermarkets called Woods for Goods that was scattered around Wellington. Huh. Uh, he, he was a Woods and then into um, New World Supermarkets, actually. So I, I am the uh, daughter of two grocers. Uh, and uh, your long-term Wellington family. Um, I was just thinking when you're talking about being five, we grew up with a pool in the backyard. We'd, it was um, we used to drag kayaks down the bank and kayak around the Pawahatanui Inlet. Um, so a very, um, I, I guess, um, access to nature. You know, it was always there, and a ubiquitous Kiwi upbringing in many ways. Yeah. So it sounds yeah. like the outdoors was a big part of it. Then swimming in the ocean and all that. Camping. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, all of that stuff. Camp, camping with Fano, yeah, big mm-hmm. big family camping trips and trips to the beach and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. great. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the roles uh, or the types of jobs, I guess, mm. you know, like grocery delivery. Yes. And it is, it's it's like a big full circle, isn't it? Because yes. that's now, you know, becoming 
a thing again. <laughs> yeah, totally. So my grandmother used to talk about this. You would, um, she would ring ring in her order right. once a week. That was, you know, four pounds of butter and, and whatever. So she would ring in the order and then, you know, it got delivered. And I think, how helpful. <laughs> It'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So um, I guess describe your um, childhood then, you know, yes. thinking through primary school and things yes. like that. Yeah. What, what, yeah. what took your interest? What, what type of person were you? Yeah. Oh, another great question. Um, in hindsight, I've been thinking about this a little bit recently, having just moved into the chief executive role, you think what motivates you and what's important to you. Mm. And working for Akina, being a values-driven company, um, I'd worked at Akina for three and a half years before I applied for the CE role. Running the engine is how I described it. And I, I say that Akina stole my heart in the sense that then I got really interested in the co-papa of, of Akina, not just in, in making sure the business was running well. And then I linked that back to, I was like, well, what, why was that important to me? And social justice has, has always been an impor- important part of my life. I was always at primary school and, again, through college, a champion for the underdog. Um, and I remember writing to the parish priest at the age of nine and asking why altar girls weren't allowed on the altar, so why I wasn't allowed to serve on the altar, and I was allowed to run the overhead projector. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think inequity was, was something that really got under my skin just mm-hmm. because it was not fair, and you know the, the tantrums of a nine and ten-year-old of don't tell me I can't do this, that is not fair. So I've always been a feminist, and that has bled into, I guess, um, yeah, so social justice and social inequity has been a big driver, which then um, growing up, uh, well, being part of, of the world in the current day, then moves into really understanding the impact that humans are having on the world. Yeah. And that, that sort of attitude that you're describing, had that come from some part of your family, do you think? Like if you look back, was it, are there traces of it in other people that maybe would have modeled it or was it, yes. no, it was just you? Or uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. So no, I um, lots of strong women in, in my family and lots of strong female role models. Um, yeah, my, my mother always balanced uh, working and, and being at home, being around for the children. And it's only since I've become a mother that I've really appreciated how difficult that juggle must have been. But as did her mother before her. So both of my grandmothers were, were working parents. Um, and I have very yeah strong female role models there. And I went to an all girls school where I grew up in the in the eighties in New Zealand where you were um, told where girls were told girls can do anything. And I had a I had a banner in my room that I'd got from school and it said girls can do anything. And I had one of those stickers that you have at eight years old that had your name on it. And I put Nicola in front of the girls. You know Nicola can do anything. Mm. And that was the rhetoric that 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 we grew up with. The the more enlightened feminist movement will tell you that. Girls were taught in the 80s that girls could do anything, but there wasn't the the asterisks of, but you can't do everything. And so I have learnt as I've moved um, through my 40s, really, that yes, you can do anything, but don't try to do everything. There's a distinction there. Right. Um, so, to, yeah, so to answer your question, um, a really strong upbringing where, where I was taught around self-belief and, and finding your North Star and going out there and making it happen. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, maybe this will be a theme that we can come back to as we're talking as well, because it, it's really interesting to me, because I've, I've got young children now, mm-hmm. you know, three girls and a boy, and just looking at them and the environment that they grow up in and mm-hmm. and what their future will look like and, and what the possibilities will be. Yes, yeah, yeah. and my, my brothers were always um, warning my parents that um, that I'll burn out. Um, so that's the running joke in our family. I'm, I'm not sure if I've burnt out yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's still a lot more left. <laughs> that's great. And 
then coming through high school years, like yes. did certain subjects appeal to you, or yeah? Yes, yeah. Very, I'm very interested in, in English and in literature. Uh, very, I was in the debating club. I loved debating. Um, yeah, very fond memories of, of debating, and I loved history um, and and the arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. And coming to the end of high school then, yes. given what you liked, did you know what you were going to do next? Like, Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. a very confident answer. <laughs> yeah, I was always it? going to be a lawyer. Oh, okay. So I was always going to law school and mm-hmm. going to be a lawyer. And five years later, after a lot of blood, sweat and tears, I got to the, towards the end of my law degree and thought, I'm not sure that this is the right thing for me. I think I can, uh, yeah, I think I'm driven by different things. Interesting. Yeah. And that study that you'd done, was mm-hmm. that in Wellington as well? Yeah. Or were you, yeah. It was in Wellington, yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh. At, at Victoria University of Wellington, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. So um, that the legal side, what was it that had attracted you to it? Was it the, the chance mm. to effect change through it or, yeah, mm. did you um, know lawyers or? Yeah, so no, I, d- I didn't know any lawyers. Um, so my passion for the law was driven by um, a sense of justice and, and injustice. Uh, and I recognised towards the end of my law degree that there were two types of law that really interested me. So one was the um, international human rights law, and I held a perception that I think was correct, that that was very, very difficult to get into. It's very competitive. Mm. Uh, and secondly, the other aspect was a very vocational um, advocacy piece of work um, around family law and uh, looking after children and children's wellbeing. And at, at 20-something years old, I could recognise that that was very vocational, and at the age that I was, I didn't feel that I was actually mature enough to get into family law. So I thought, no, this isn't the right thing for me now. Uh, this isn't the change that I'm going to affect on the world, and set off to um, yeah, to do other things. Um, I really wanted to do my profs though, so I managed because I wanted to complete complete the degree, right. and I managed. I was lucky enough to um, be offered a graduate position at, at Deloitte uh, in their graduate program as a non accountant, as a as a lawyer. But at that time, they were looking at setting up Deloitte Legal. Um, it was a very different landscape um, globally. It was yeah. pre Enron, uh, and so I was really part of of what they thought was going to become a legal movement within the accountancy firm, and I got the benefit of some amazing training in my um, legal professional studies paid off so I could yeah could tie a bow around that which was great it was a very satisfying feeling great so were you with Deloitte for a while then yeah three and a half years yeah again in Wellington um, working as a management consultant on some really interesting projects Um, you were thrown on on all all manner of things I really enjoyed the variety of work there Uh, set up the very first laptops for schools program where laptops were um, leased out to school principals and worked on some large infrastructure programs and um, some technology projects. Right, that's great. Mm. And what sort of era were you talking about here? What years were you? Uh, so I started in the year 2000, actually, at the t- turn of the century, and yeah, would have left around 2004, yeah. where I headed off overseas. Yeah, so yeah. we yeah, we definitely would have walked by each other several times in our lives. <laughs> <because> <laughs> I moved to Wellington in 2001 in February, right. and I started at Russell McVeigh, um, and I did my profs. I thought your face looked familiar. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's where I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were down at Midland Park. I was. Yes, while I was just up the hill on Molesworth Street. Yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah. and I probably had friends going through Russell McVeigh at that time. Could be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a small... Small place, well, right? Was Claudia Batten there at that she time? She was there, yeah. Yeah, right. Yep. So I went through law school with Claudia Batten. Oh, okay. She was a, maybe a year ahead of me. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it just shows you that um, th- it's partly New Zealand, but it is just that interweaving of life, lives and stories, isn't it? Yes. Like, 
Yeah. You're so true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And um, I loved my time at Deloitte. It was really, really good for me. I um, I met really smart people and I just sucked up all the knowledge and, and asked to go to any meeting possible to take the notes or even make the tea. I didn't really care. I just wanted to be part of the conversations. And right. I would I would leave the meeting and then I would ask the partner that about the five or six questions that I was storing up in my mind about why did you say that and why did they ask that? And yeah, I, I just really loved it. Yeah. Yeah, really enjoyed it. That's but recognised that I never wanted to be a partner in a large firm. It wasn't, wasn't right. my thing. So even when you were there, you kind of had that mindset of I'm absorbing as much as I can to then take to the next thing. It was an apprenticeship. Yep. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. 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 Oh, great. Yeah. So what happened next? Well, then we, we got married. Uh, so what happened next? Renovating a house in Whitby uh, at the age of 24 when all our friends were on Courtney Place. Uh, and then my husband, well, he wasn't my husband then, my, my husband and I got married and left the country three weeks later, which was very exciting, and um, yeah, re-established ourselves in London. And that's where I started to develop my procurement expertise. So I looked at the work that I'd done at Deloitte and I realised that there was sort of this quasi-contracting commercial legal sort mm-hmm. of element to it. Uh, and um, went to you know various recruitment agents and stuff, and they spoke about this thing called procurement. I'd never heard of procurement. I couldn't right. even spell it. Well, like, what's that? And then I understood that it was a process, and I'd been through this process many times. Uh, and um, I consulted through – I went. I worked for Circo, actually, Circo Government Consulting, they were at the time, on a large program within government. Um, there was a procurement program and, and various other – procurement gigs around around london for three or four years yeah and yeah. we were talking before we started recording because i was there 2004 to 2008 just about that terrorist attack that happened yes were, were you new in that position that you were in at that point or yeah, yeah maybe so talk about that because people sure. might be interested yeah cool so um yeah very interesting program um so after 9 11 in the states uh the uk government went we're, we're not equipped to respond to terrorist incidents. So they threw £100 million at the UK Fire and Rescue Service. And if anyone knows fire officers, um, you, you will appreciate this. So the fire officers went out and bought a lot of um, very high-spec uh, kit to respond to a number of, of terrorist and, and natural incidences. And then they got a bit stuck because they had all this stuff and they didn't really know what to do with it. And it was shiny and it looked great. And they, they called in um, a group of consultants. I was lucky enough to be one of them. And what we what we helped them to understand, the civil servants and the fire officers, was that they were building a capability-building program, which has so many parallels to the work that Akina has done in the last three years. Mm. But um, that what we were doing was building capability and it was capability to respond and the the equipment was in essence the hardware and yes that needed to be maintained you need to be trained on that but what was the capability that you were building what was the succession where was the resilience and all of that and um yeah fascinating project to be part of and as as I mentioned to you previously I was in London on the 7th of July in 2005 when the terrorist attacks happened and I was working on that counter-terrorism program at that time and really I just sort of had this out-of-body experience where I was like this is crazy that I'm here in London the boss has gone off to Cobra cabinet's calling it's all on and there's this little Kiwi girl from Whitby helping to advise it was yeah pretty surreal yeah it must have felt yeah very strange because I remember that day 
arriving at the office and then somebody coming and just saying you can't go outside mm. there's been some terrorist attacks because it was it was the tube it was the buses, the buses yeah. and it was just this uncertainty and what next yeah, yeah. what next yeah. but for you in that position it would be like wait a minute is this a drill wait is, this is real because <laughs> it's yeah it was quite a shocking thing yeah it was funny Stephen and I remember I thought I just want to go home I want to go home. I don't mm. want to be here. And that was a panic flight or flight reaction. And then you calm down and, and life went on. But it was a very strong feeling of, gosh, I'm glad I'm from New Zealand. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, feel, did you feel your identity got, I guess, sharper focused while you were overseas? Or? Very much so. Yeah. Very much so that you, um, I was, yeah, a funny story, actually. Um, I was working on this program and a man um, who was a program lead, he was came out of the Air Force and he said, oh, you need to meet Mike. You'll get on with Mike. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, happy to meet Mike. He goes, yeah, he's from the colonies. I was like, <laughs> what? And Mike was from Canada. And I was like, it's just ra- racism, really, that I'd yeah. never experienced before. And Mike was great. We went out and had a beer, but we always would have. Um, and I was, and so, yes, so you, it, it, sharp, it sharpened my mind to the fact that, yeah, I guess I, I had a, a brand or, or a race to other people. I'd never really thought about it before. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. fascinating to me because I, I have an accent, but I actually grew up in New Zealand. Like, we moved here in 1983. So my father got a job here. And anyway, when I was in London, I mm. found that I started to wear like a ponamu, you know, like yes. a, a symbol or something that was a connection back to this country. Yes. That if I was here, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have worn it with the regularity that I wore it when I was overseas, but it was yep. like this little thing here, mm. you know, around my neck and mm. it gave me that, you know, sense of peace in a way, like I come from this other place. Very much so. And I think the sense of why am I different to the people who live here and, and what does that mean? And a real pride in that, actually. Mm, yeah. yeah, it was great. Unfortunately, I saw the All Blacks lose a few times while I was overseas. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> once at Cardiff, which still breaks my heart, and once, yeah, once in Paris. <laughs> That's hard to, to show up at work the next day, <laughs> <Yeah>. isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So um, coming back to New Zealand, was yes. that on the in the plans, like you always wanted to come back or...? Uh, eventually, uh, we came. We, I was. I describe it as being dragged home, kicking and screaming by my husband, who'd had enough. Mm-hmm. His mountain bike got stolen um, from out, locked up outside the pub, and he came home. He's like, "I've had enough. You've got to go." So uh, it was. It was time, and, and we came back to Wellington. And um, there was some thought about whether we would move to Sydney or Auckland mm-hmm. or um, Porniki, and. Um, it came down to Hetangata, like that, and, and Fano. Um, that's mm. where the people were. So why would we make it difficult to mm. to interact with? We're both from Wellington, yeah. um, w- with our families, regardless of whether we had our own children or not. Um, so we, yeah, we came home to Wellington, and frankly, have, have never looked back. Mm. Like, yeah, very much. So like, why would I live anywhere else? Is how I feel now. Yeah, it's a beautiful city. I mean, I live in Christchurch because I, similar to you, I grew up in Christchurch. So mm-hmm. to me. It's a place I can get in a car and drive somewhere and I get there without even thinking about it. You know, it's just, it's so ingrained. Mm. Um, but I met my wife in Wellington. We got married in Wellington. It's a beautiful place. You know, mm. it's it's mm. somewhere, if we weren't here, I think we'd probably be there because, mm. yeah, it's just that mm. compact nature and such so quirky as well, all the little yeah. side streets and yeah. Kuta Street. And, 
I almost had to though um, curb my slightly competitive nature, like this feeling of, well, I've come from from London, and I want to, I want to be the best of the best. So that's where you go to Auckland or Sydney to do that. Um, so I, um, yeah, after some sort of thinking about what does actually drive me and what's important, realizing that doing good work is what matters and what's important. And I didn't end as trying and not getting caught up with being part of what I perceived as a bit of a rat race at, at that time in Auckland where the mortgages were so much higher than they were in, in Wellington and things. It's like actually I'm, I'm, I'm going to choose not to be part of that was more the feeling. That's great. Yeah. So talk us through the next few years and then how did you end up with Akina? Ah, oh, so so great question. So you came back to New Zealand and had this this great um, UK procurement experience, and wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, so sent my CV into the head of procurement at New Zealand Post for him to have a, have a look and give me some advice. He rang me up and offered me a job, <laughs> which was wonderful. Uh, and I was just interested in contract work at that time, so I contracted to him um, for six months. And at that time, met the head of procurement at Kiwi Bank, and she wanted to go to the Rugby World Cup, so she wanted someone to do her job while she was heading overseas. So then I went to Kiwi Bank and he, uh, worked in the procurement team, and then headed up the procurement team for a period of time there. And short story, I um, contracted in and out of government in Wellington for about fifteen years. As we had the family, and it provided me with the flexibility to work part-time as I wanted, work on interesting projects as I chose and and in and out of various government agencies, which in hindsight created a fantastic network of procurement people around Wellington because I've worked at ACC and I've worked with an MB and um, it's, yeah, it's been a real joy to, to make those connections and to keep those up. So I did that for a period of time and then um, was really deciding what next and it was 2017, the Social Enterprise World Forum was happening in Christchurch at that time. I was following it on LinkedIn, I didn't really know what it was but it looked pretty cool. Uh, I was connected with um, Louise Aitken, the then General Manager of Arkina and I noticed that Louise got promoted and I thought that means there'll be a job vacancy there. And so I kept my eye out on their website. Uh, I got back to work to my desk at, at ACC on what is the equivalent of about the 15th of January, checked the website and applications had closed that day for the general manager position. And I was like, oh, I've missed out. <laughs> oh my God. And I rang the recruitment agent and I said, I'm sorry, I just got back from leave. Will you accept a late application? She said, yes, I applied, and, and the rest is history. Wow. So, yeah. so what was it about the LinkedIn posts and things that was intriguing to you? Because uh, you, lo- didn't, you didn't even go to the conference, it sounds like. No. It was just like no. watching from afar. Yeah, watching from <laughs> afar. So what, what appealed to me, and I feel a bit of a fraud saying this, to be honest, um, Stephen, having had the luxury of recruiting a lot of people into Akina now, I didn't know what social enterprise was. I didn't know what Akina was. What I knew was that I wanted to run a business and I had wanted to do that from the age of about 20 and that I was ready for a change and I had a deep specialisation in procurement and I wanted to broaden my skill set and I thought there's a smallish medium-sized business that will broaden my skill set. I'll go in there in the general manager role and I'll run that business and that was what that's why it worked so well, actually, between Louise and I, because I was there to run the business, and right. that's what I wanted to do, and that was my passion. And I used to say, I run a social enterprise, uh, and, and I loved it. And um, Lou was, has very much been um, the, the public face of Akina in many ways. And, uh, yeah, so my, my, what drew me to, to the opportunity was the opportunity to broaden my skill set and, and run a, a small to medium-sized business, which, yeah, and I relished the challenge. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Well, some people listening um, maybe aren't as familiar with Akina as others. Yes, so yes. do you mind just stepping back for a little bit in terms of the background yeah, and great. the foundations of what it is, what the history, yes. but then what it is that you're doing today? Yes. Yeah, so as I said earlier, Stephen, so then Akina stole my heart mm. and I became really invested in the kaupapa and realized that it linked so strongly to my desires around um, social equality. So what, what Akina does, Akina was a Established in 2008, it's the Hikarangi Foundation focused on um, incubating ideas and initiatives that were going to help the imminent threat that was climate change. Um, in 2014, we rebranded as the Akina Foundation. Mm-hmm. Akina means to to go to encourage bold action. And my goodness, after um, almost four years at Akina, we, we really do encourage bold action. Uh, it's, it's, it's very exciting and very innovative. But at, at that time, we were led by Alex Hennant, who um, had seen a model that he understood um, called social enterprise in the UK. He came to New Zealand and he could not see any discussion or literature or um, understanding of this model called social enterprise. So we really then became the advocates for social enterprise in New Zealand. Uh, for those who don't know, um, social enterprise is about um, bringing together business and and purpose so we, we talk about it as, as good business or business for good and we're increasingly talking about impact-led business which could be Māori business community and business Pacifica business or or a social enterprise that is working to deliver yes a financial return because you need to be financially sustainable but more importantly um, a positive social or environmental impact so, and we believe that uh, good business or impact-led business is not done at the expense of people or the planet. Um, yeah, was delighted to hear that the minimum wage has risen, and that you know, then you hear these stories about well, then six thousand people won't have jobs, and in, in, in our view, it's like yeah, and then there's six thousand less really bad jobs out there mm. for people. So, you know, why would you do business if it's actually at the expense of people? Um, so, it, it's that that kind of thinking and ethos yeah. is, is what what drives Akina. Yeah, that's great. And there's quite a few different branches mm-hmm. of, of interest, I guess, because <laughs> I know yes. um, Sean is based down here. He's yes. got a real focus on procurement and Jackson up in Auckland, real focus on investing and mm-hmm. impact investing. Can you just describe maybe some of the the different branches or you know sure. what it is you're focused on so what, what what weaves together all of our work is impact uh, and helping organizations be they a small enterprise that's starting out right up to large corporates and including government agencies helping them understand the impact of their business so um, we have four branches to our work and one of those branches is our impact consulting team we work with clients like um, Kayanga Ora and uh, Westpac and, and Fletcher Building to help them understand the impact of either a small program or impact of, of a larger piece, piece of, of, of their business or their entire business. So how their impact links into their strategy, how that might link to the sustainable development goals, how that might link to the government's living standards framework, mm-hmm. etc. So th- that um, uh, is intertwined in everything that we do is, is impact and impact consulting. And we we recognised that if you have a business, there are two key levers to help that business grow. So one is access to procurement, access to contracts, and the other is access to investment. And so we have a a social procurement team and an impact investment team. The social procurement team works to as an intermediary to introduce um, 
enlightened buyers with purpose-led businesses, purpose-led suppliers. Our impact investing team um, works to grow impact investing in New Zealand, a lot of advocacy work there, um, to help the market understand that you can get a financial return and a positive impact, but more as importantly, to understand that impact investment is about more than just having diversity on your board. It's more than minimising harm, i.e. not investing in tobacco. It is intentionally investing for positive climate outcomes, for example, or um, positive social, social outcomes and receiving those dual returns there. And then finally, the fourth part of our business, which is um, mostly, um, it's really our charitable purpose, is around um, not just our advocacy work, but capability building. So working with um, impact-led businesses to help them build their capability. And we have contracts with Foundation North, the Pacific Business Trust, and um, the Ministry of Social Development, as, as well as others, to help run ca- capability programs across Aotearoa. Yeah, that's awesome. And I can encourage people, um, I think there's two parts to what I've seen. The first is the website because there's a yes. lot of resources there. Yes. <laughs> so yes. if people are listening, um, I'll put in the show notes like links where people can click because um, there is a lot of material, yes. you know, describing impact, describing, you know, um, templates for how do you think about yes. startups or new businesses yes. and what are you trying to achieve? Mm. So that's the first thing. But then the second thing, and maybe you can comment on this, is this impact initiative, which mm-hmm. has been running. I know mm-hmm. it's kind of finished now, sure. um, but that was a program that was going for a couple of years. And um, I had a small part to play in one of the papers that was yes. written out yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, but I think that that could go as an understated thing, but it's sure. important because it, it was showing thought leadership um, across a variety of things. Mm, um, mm, you know, there mm. were papers, you mm. know, talking about how mm. do we measure impact and, mm. and legal structures and, mm, and all these mm. things. And I think the more I think about it, we have to have those sorts of papers to build a foundation mm, to mm. then have more conversation. And if you don't lay that, then it's really difficult later on to yeah. take people on the journey quickly. Yeah. But if they know that it's out there, it makes it much easier. Yeah, that's so true. Um, Stephen and I think the 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 papers and yeah I'll, I'll comment on that. A lot of that um, speaks to the advocacy advocacy work that Arkina does in terms of getting the word out there about the fact that there is a different way to do business, mm. um, and that you don't have to be a charity to deliver good things, um, and that that yeah, business is a great model to drive good outcomes. So we were lucky enough to be the government's partner for three years three and a half years in the impact initiative uh there yeah the impact initiative um dot .org.nz and if you jump on there there's some wonderful case studies about um, great impact led businesses including Māori businesses and social social enterprises and links to a number of of resources from everything from how to measure your impact um what what is impact um and yeah, a number of publications that we released along that three-year journey. There were three outcomes, uh, three contracted outcomes with with government in that um, in in the five million dollar three-year program. One was at the end of it, we would see a thriving social enterprise sector. We're certainly seeing um, increasing growth in this way of doing business, and we have seen a number of social enterprises just get get bigger and bigger, which is just fantastic. It's so great to, to watch their mm. um, watch their journey. The second one was that social enterprises could articulate their impact to government goals. 
of their contribution to government goals, sorry. And that's a really big thing. So that's about saying, hey, understand your impact, measure your impact and communicate that impact so that we can all, so that government can understand how you are doing the work for them. So that was the second um, goal. And the third goal, which is the one that we're still working on, is working with government to have a strategy for social enterprise going forward. So we are lucky enough to still be involved in in conversations with um, the Minister for the Community and Voluntary Sector, along with others in the sector. We're a part of her advisory group. And we published a paper in April this year at the conclusion of the programme, which included recommendations for government right across the four areas that I've discussed today, social procurement, impact investment, capability and measuring impact and understanding impact generally. We've provided recommendations to government about the practical things that they can do to take this this area forward and continue this this mahi. Mm. Yeah, yep. that's awesome. I um I'm really interested in your feeling having been involved now for a couple of years, mm-hmm. you know, going from the LinkedIn observing yes, yes. <laughs> to now being in the role that you're yes. in. Um, even in that time, have uh, what what what's your feeling in terms of the the ecosystem and the developments that are happening, like even comparing to when you started yep. to, to today, like are you hearing more stories of people who are interested in this and, mm-hmm. or, yeah, mm-hmm. any reflections? So I think, so yes, um, so my observation is that um, COVID has helped us into a certain extent actually, um, is that business, bigger, bigger business, corporate and government have, have understood that this this isn't going away. It's not flavour of the month. Um, that it is thing, things are, are going deeper than they have done previously. And I, I I believe that there is a bigger drive in corporate New Zealand to understand, report on, and improve their social and environmental impact. Mm. The journey of New Zealand Post in that regard has been phenomenal. In 2017, David Walsh, the then chief ex- the chief executive, stood up and said, "At the end of the year, we will have three social enterprises in our supply chain." Um, they would have oh, many more than that now, and are, are doing fantastic things in their not in, in their rebrand with with the uniform project, um, in their compostable packaging, and even in their infrastructure work um, in the in the sorting rooms and things that, that they are delivering. So weaving social procurement right through right through their work. So that's at sort of the, the big end of town. Um, at, at the social enterprise or the impact-led business in, um, in the trend that we have seen or the observation that I make is that this has become more and more about the impact of your mahi, more so than whether you meet a strict legal definition in terms of your legal structure. So it's become the, the conversation, the narrative has become more about impact, which can only be a good thing. And I have seen... Um, Impact-led businesses, I'm thinking of Inspiring Stories, Dignity, um, Duffel & Co., The Natural Paint Company, Raglan Yogurt, just see them go from strength to strength. And um, it's an absolute delight to have been part of that journey and to have have brought their successes to light, to to, to keep keep advocating for them and publicising those Mm. stories. Yeah, I'm seeing similar trends and similar things um, in terms of the interest level. It's not getting less it's if anything it's doubling or tripling you know in in terms of particularly i'm finding young entrepreneurs who are are coming to set up their business and they're almost naturally thinking about what's my impact you know uh, in a a positive way so (laughs) So, yeah yeah, it's it's fascinating to watch it though evolve and i think uh, we we started talking um before we were recording just about history and you know like 
if we go 50 years from now, we're probably going to look back if we're around <laughs> and we'll say, yep, I think we were on the right side there in terms of the, the mm. contribution mm. that this sort of movement mm. has. Mm. Um, I'm interested in the terminology because let's just park there for a second. Just mm. I'm starting to use that word impact a lot more mm. and I noticed that you're using it as yep. well. Yes. Um, my feeling on this is that social enterprise is a term that's used overseas quite a lot yes. and it has its own, um, I guess, baggage it, that comes with that term mm. because mm. it's been used for a long time in the UK mm. um, or other places as well. And we have a chance here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, to actually reinvent what we're even talking about. And so that's why I'm using that impact word a lot more. Mm. And, and I think that's broader than social, because social to me, it's kind of excluding environmental in some yes. ways. So yeah. we need the bigger terms. But any mm. thoughts on that? Uh, just, so I, just so I concur, um, Stephen, what I like about using the word impact is I feel it it better reflects Aotearoa and that it can encompass Te Ao Māori, mm. uh, which we used to describe as the first social enterprises or the first version of social enterprise. But actually, it's more than that. It's it's a way of doing business because it's the right way to do business. It's putting people and the planet at the heart of it. And we have so much to learn from that. And by using the word impact, I just feel it's a bit more um, inclusive, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think anybody can get on board with it. You know, like it, it, yes. it, if you sometimes words are important and labels are important, but if they're used to pigeonhole or to say that's what they do, that's what those people do, then um, mm. actually the concepts and the principles behind social enterprise would apply to any company. Mm. And I think that would probably be both of our dreams is that yeah. all businesses take on board these concepts and, that's and, right. and the way of being. Yeah. 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 Can I ask you a question? Because I know that you're an expert in procurement. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm a bit rusty. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just wanting to make it easy for the listeners, you know, because some of them are business owners. And yes. yeah, talk us through what we actually mean by procurement. Sure. And, and particularly um, thinking through that, I guess, impact-led procurement. Like mm-hmm. what would that involve or what mm-hmm. would that mean for a company if yeah. they're looking at their supply chains and things? Yeah, Sure. Uh, so what, what we mean by, by procurement is uh, how corporates spend their money. Uh, everyone has a, has a, a procurement footprint and a, and a supply chain in their own sense. Like in, in your own home, your procurement is your groceries and your electricity bill and, and, and your rates. And you have some um, leverage or you have some flexibility within some of the choices you make there. You might choose a, a KiwiSaver provider, for example, that is investing in, in good things, or you might just sign up to the one that was easiest. So that you have your own um, your own options over your personal procurement. And it's no different in a corporate or even in any kind of business of so the, the um, 90% of SMEs within New Zealand. So the, the great thing about using your procurement expenditure for good um, what we call social procurement is that you are in essence spending the same dollar twice so you are always going to buy paper for your photocopier but if you buy paper that's environmentally friendly well you're having a positive environmental impact as well as um, purchasing the good or the service that you need so I, I would encourage people to not think of procurement as just the problem of the Air New Zealand's or the Fonterra's of this world um, we know that SMEs make up the backbone of New Zealand so if you're running the local plumbing company, 
what are you doing about I don't know the, the the gift that you might give to your good customer at the at this time of year to say thank you is there something differently that you could be doing there because you do have an impact and lots of little activities they add up you know they add up and have a positive impact the flip side of that um government has uh, government has reasons to run very um structured procurement processes and the reasons for that are around equity and fairness so there's an obligation that anyone who pitches up to do work with government is treated fairly and is treated the same and that includes domestic and international suppliers and that nuance is often lost so because of New Zealand's fair trade agreements we have obligations to allow participants from the likes of Singapore and Australia to participate fairly and alongside domestic suppliers so what that means is that everyone for any piece of work that's tendered that's over $100,000 or more should have an equal chance at winning that piece of work. And then, then you step through an, a number of, um, a, a series of activities, I guess, or the procurement process to become the successful bidder. Now, in my view, and um, the head of New Zealand government procurement won't, won't be upset to hear me say this, in, in my view, that process could be run in a more uh, flexible manner uh, to make it easier for um, different types of businesses to respond because it does become a bit of an industry and a bit of an art to respond to government tenders and it is um, the irony has not been lost on me that I've been responding to many government tenders when I used to be on the other side of the fence creating the government tenders um, so yeah that, that's broadly speaking uh, procurement in a nutshell yeah that's great and it's I think the key or one of the keys is it's about being mindful of the organization mm-hmm. and you know I, I was I had lunch today with somebody and they were describing their business which which is great and they said we want to give some of our profits mm-hmm. to charity are we a social enterprise and I said well uh, first of all that's awesome that you want to give some things to support this charity but mm. what I would my challenge to you would be is who are you employing within the business and the people that you want to help, like the charity that you want to support, like could you employ the people that they in turn Mm -hmm. are supporting? You know, and and it's like that, it's just being a bit, it's raising the level of thinking about the business and thinking about Mm. where are we sourcing things? Mm. What are we doing with it? Who Mm. are we employing? And it's all of those elements, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I I, um, was speaking to... um, some, uh, the chief executive of, of Fetiroa, a, a skills-based um, iwi-led organisation here in, in Otatahu, and we were talking about um, getting Māori into the trades and encouraging the um, organisations that were employing them to think further than that and not just, oh, here's a number of apprenticeships. It's like, well, what's the career path for that individual? How do they get off the tools? How do, how do they do this for a period of time and bounce into something else? Mm. Um, and what, what are the wraparound services that are being provided around that? Mm. Yeah, yeah, so it is about thinking things, thinking about things in a different way. Uh, our social procurement program has really encouraged corporate buyers to think about their contracts um, differently. There was a long a period of time where the approach seemed to be pile it high and, and buy it cheap and or then I just have to deal with, with one interface with one organisation. And we've worked with corporates to say, well, actually, could you carve off a piece of this uniform tender and could that go to a smaller local provider who is em- employing um, migrant women? Uh, so to, to give them that opportunity to, to get access to that corporate procurement, which when it's a, you know, a multi-million dollar tender, they never have the opportunity to do. Yeah. Yeah, lots of things for people to think about, maybe. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been great to have you on the show. I really appreciate um, hearing about your journey. And before we started recording, I think I asked you 
how's it going or yes, something like that yes, and what yes. was your response do you remember uh, i do remember i said it's lots of fun it's lots of fun yeah i thought yeah. that that's a great response i i hope for the listeners <laughs> i hope they can <laughs> respond that way when they think about their job because yes. that's the beauty of finding your niche in you know in this big world is yes. if you can approach your job and say actually it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm very lucky. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. But I've appreciated hearing about your journey as well and your background and like what's kind of led you to now do what you do. Um, so you. what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put links to things and people mm-hmm. can find them. But I just yep, want to say great. thanks for coming on the show. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Nicola. If you did, then don't forget there's plenty more in the back catalog. And check out the links in the show note for some of the things that we talked about. Until next time.